Chapter Two: Puritan Power. Okay, so by now, hopefully, you're saying, "Wow, this really isn't like the history books I'm used to." And if you aren't saying that, well, how many history books have you read? And guess what? You wouldn't be the first one. So after Gomez Eanes de Zarara's ridiculous money-grabbing lie, there were other European race theorists who followed suit, using his text as a jumping-off point for their own concepts and racist ideas to justify the enslavement of Africans. Because if there's one thing we all know about humans, it's that most of us are followers, looking for something to be part of to make us feel better about our own selfishness. Oh, wait. Is that just me? Oh, it is just me. Ah, sorry. <laughs> Got it. Anyway, the followers came sniffing around, drumming up their own cockamamie. Best word ever. Even better than Zurara. Though possibly it's a synonym? Cockamamie. <laughs> anyway, their own cockamamie theories, two of which would set the table for the conversation around racism for centuries to come. Those theories were, one, climate theory. This actually came from Aristotle. We'll get back to him later who questioned whether Africans were born this way or if the heat of the continent made them inferior. Many people agreed it was simply just the climate and that if African people lived in cooler temperatures, they could, in fact, become white. And, second one, the curse theory. Well, in 1577, after noticing that Inuit people in northeastern, freezing cold Canada were darker than the people living in the hotter south, English travel writer George Best determined, conveniently for all parties interested in owning slaves, that it couldn't have been climate that made darker people inferior and instead determined that Africans were in fact cursed. First of all, could you imagine someone on the Travel Channel telling you that you're cursed? Like, really? And what did Best use to prove this theory of his? Only one of the most irrefutable books of 19 or of excuse me 1577, the Bible. In Best's whimsical interpretation of the book of Genesis, Noah orders his white sons not to have children with their wives while they're on the ark, and then tells them that actually it's the first child born after the flood on earth that would inherit the earth. Well, when evil tyrannical Ham goes ahead and has a baby with his wife on the ark, God wills that Ham's descendants and all of them will be dark and disgusting. Though this is a side note here from Miss Leah, the word dark um, actually had a very different translation in the language, original language it was written in, and, and may not have meant to refer to skin tone at all. It may have meant instead to refer to um, sort of a darkness of the soul or personality, um, which would have meant then had had nothing at all to do with the color of somebody's skin, but have just have meant sort of someone being mean and unkind. Um, English somehow got it translated into the word dark, which we also use to refer to various skin tones. But anyway, I digress. Back to the book. So, in this book of Genesis, God wills it that Ham's descendants will be dark and disgusting, and the whole world will look at them as symbols of trouble. Simply put, Ham's kids would be black and bad, ultimately making the word black itself bad. Curse theory would then become the anchor of what would justify African slavery in the United States. 
They would branch off into another ridiculous idea, and that is the strange concept that because Africans were cursed and because, according to these Europeans, they needed enslavement in order to be saved and civilized, the relationship between slave and master then was considered as loving, that it was more sort of like a parent and a child, or a mentor and a mentee, or a teacher and a student. They were painting a compassionate picture about something horrible something that was actually certainly a terrible experience because, well, human beings were being forced into servitude and there's no way to spin that into one big happy family. But the literature said otherwise. That's right, there was another piece of literature, this one written by a man named William Perkins, and it was called Ordering a Family. This one was published in 1590. And in, in this, he argues that the slave was just part of a loving family unit that happened to be ordered in a particular way, and that the souls and the potential of the souls were equal, but not the skin. It's like saying I look at my dog like I look at my children, even though actually I trained my dog to fetch my paper simply by beating it and yanking it on its leash. But the idea of it all let the new enslavers off the emotional hook and betrayed them as benevolent do-gooders who were cleaning up the Africans. A generation later, slavery touched down in the newly colonized America, and the people there to usher it in, and more importantly, to use it to build this new country, were two men, each of whom saw himself as a similar kind of do-gooder. Their names were John Cotton and Richard Mather. About Cotton and Mather, they were Puritans. About Puritans, they were English Protestants who believed the reformation of the Church of England was basically watering down their religion, Christianity, and they sought to regulate it to keep it more disciplined and rigid, strict. So these two men at different times traveled across the Atlantic Ocean in search of a new land, and the new land they found would be Boston, where they could escape what they believed was English persecution and preach their version of what they believed was a purer version of Christianity, their religion. They landed in America after many treacherous trips, especially Richard Mather, whose ship sailed into a storm in 1635 and almost collided with a massive rock in the ocean. Mather, of course, saw his survival of this journey to America as a miracle and even became more devoted. Both men were ministers. They built churches in Massachusetts, but more importantly, they built systems. The church there wasn't just a place of worship. The church was a place of power and influence. And in this new land, John Cotton and Richard Mather had a whole lot of power and influence. And the first thing they did to spread the Puritan way was to find other people who were like-minded. And with those like-minded folks, they created schools that enforced higher education skewed towards their way of thinking. What school do you think was the first to get that Puritan touch? Well, this is a trick question, because the answer is the very first university in America ever. Remember, everything in the Puritan society in the Americas was brand new. America itself, of course, was not brand new. But the Puritan colonial colonists were. And the very first university in America ever was Harvard University. But a tricky thing happens with the opening of Harvard. A tricky thing that directly connects Zorara and the curse and climate theories, those cockamamie ones I mentioned a few pages back, and everything we've talked about thus far. See, Cotton and Mather were students of Aristotle. That's right, Aristotle. Aristotle 
Though held up as one of the greatest Greek philosophers of all time, famous for things we will not be discussing here because this is not a history book, but which we will talk about a little bit in our Greeks block, believed something that he's not nearly as famous for. Aristotle had some great philosophies worth studying. One of them that perhaps not so worthy was his idea in human hierarchy. That's right. Aristotle believed that Greeks were superior to non-Greeks. John Cotton and Richard Mather took Aristotle's idea, because they too were followers, and they flipped it into a new equation and they substituted the word Puritan for Greek. And because of their miraculous journey across the raging ocean, especially Richard Mather's, they believed that they were the chosen people. They believed that they were special. They believed that they were superior. According to the Puritans, they were better than Native Americans, they were better than English people who weren't Puritans, and they were better than everybody else who wasn't a Puritan, and most especially they were better than Africans. And guess what they did during the development of Harvard? They made it so that Latin and Greek texts could not be disputed, which meant that Aristotle, a man who believed in human hierarchy and used climate to justify which humans were better than others, could not be disputed and instead just had to be taken as truth. No one was allowed to argue with it because if it was written in Greek or Latin, you couldn't have a you couldn't think that it was wrong. You couldn't discuss it even. And just like that, the groundwork was laid not only for slavery to be justified, but for it to be justified for a long, long time, simply because it was woven into the religious and into the educational systems of America, and you were not allowed to discuss it. All that was needed to complete this oppressive puzzle were the slaves. Well, America at this time was like one of those games where you have to build a world. I mean, this isn't exactly true, because there was a world here existing, a beautiful world of indigenous peoples, many different tribes. They had cultures and civilizations of their own. Many of them had violent tendencies, just as the Americas do. But anyway, the first Europeans to settle in America, the first colonists, were a social network of farmers and planters. And if you weren't a farmer planter, then you were a missionary. So you were either dirt folk or you were church folk. Everyone working to grow on stolen land. Obviously, their native neighbors weren't happy about any of this because their world, that had already existed here in the Americas, was being broken, while a new world, the colonial world, was being built. And it was planted one seed at a time. The seed? Tobacco. A man named John Pory, a defender of curse theory, the cousin of one of the early major landowners, was named America's first legislative leader. Well, the first thing he did was set the price of the plant tobacco, seeing that it could be the country's cash crop. But if tobacco was really going to bring in some money, if it was really going to be a natural resource used to power the country, then there would need more human resources to grow it. So do you see where this is going? Tobacco grew really beautifully in the same lands, the same places, the same climate, where um, cotton grew beautifully, and this is in the, the southern states of the Americas. So down south, the climate was perfectly suitable for the plants, cotton, and tobacco to grow. Um, and these are um, plants that we will study in our botany block. So anyway, back to the book. See where this is going. In August 1619, there was a Spanish ship that was called San Juan Bautista, and it was hijacked by two pirate ships. 
The Bautista was carrying 350 Angolans, and Angola is a country in Africa, because Latin American slaveholders had already figured out that their own slave trading system, and they had enslaved 250,000 people from Africa. So the pirates robbed the Bautista, and they took 60 of the Angolans who were on board. They headed east, sailing east, and they eventually came upon the shores of Jamestown, Virginia. There, they sold 20 of the Angolans they'd stolen to a cousin of John Pory, the one with all the land, who happened to be also the governor of Virginia. His name was George Yardley, and those first 20 slaves, per Yardley and Pory, were right on time to work. But remember, America was full of planters and missionaries, and the new slaves were going to cause a little bit of conflict between the planters and the missionaries. For a planter, the slave was a big help and could be the four-digit code to the American ATM. Here comes the cash. On the flip side, missionaries coming down the line of Puritan and Zurara's propaganda felt slavery was a means to salvation. Planters wanted to grow the profits while missionaries wanted to grow their churches. Now, no one cared what the enslaved Africans wanted, which to start would have been to have been left home or to be here and not be enslaved. They definitely didn't want the religion of their masters and they definitely did not want to be enslaved. And their masters resisted too. Enslavers weren't interested in hearing anything about converting their slaves to one religion or another. They didn't care. Saving their crops each year was more important to them than saving anyone's soul. It was harvest over humanity. And the excuses they gave to avoid baptizing slaves, baptizing means making them a member of a specific church, the excuses they gave were Africans were too barbaric to be converted. Africans were too savage at the soul. And the biggest excuse they gave was that Africans were so savage, so barbaric, that they couldn't be loved by any god. <laughs>